Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm excited to say that I've spent time with Bjarn Tellman, the general counsel at Pallion, a legend in general counsel circles. He's had a fascinating career, a fascinating person, and he takes us through his journey right from before he studied law. He was actually an actor. You'll hear him talk about that in his time in film and TV, his time at Chicago Law School, how impactful that was, and his journey in law starting off at White and Cason and making his way um, through both law firms as well as um, uh, in-house, notably at Coca-Cola, and then uh, through other positions, including Pearson, at which point he wrote a book, Building an Outstanding Legal Team. He's got a fantastic philosophy on um, on careers and being open to opportunities. Um, you'll hear a saying we talk about, let's give it a shot and see what happens, and you'll see how that um, that mantra has played out in Beyond's own life. We even get to a bit of advice on partnering and marriage. So I've, I've thrown that one right in the end when, um, when I ask Bjorn what advice he would give, um, what marriage advice would he give. So um, I've got a huge amount of respect for Bjorn, as I have for all my guests, but he's really achieved incredible things in the community. He's a thought leader. I would, if you haven't connected with Bjorn, I would reach out and connect with him. He's a delightful person. He's got a lot to share too. So he's one of those individuals that the community, the legal community should be proud that we've been able to, you know, give birth to and watch flourish and make an impact on all of us. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Bjarne Talman, what an absolute pleasure this is, a man who needs no introduction. I haven't said that before, so welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. Hey, thanks a lot, Jim. It's great being here. Yeah. Now, we've seen each other a couple of times in the last few months. We've bumped into certain corridors, so it's fantastic to be able to have a discussion with you, which we can share with our audience. And I'm going to jump straight in, Bjarne, and ask you, talk to me about your journey before choosing to study law. Listen, I had a very, I guess you could say, a very unusual and roundabout way of, of arriving at uh, the law. I grew up in uh, various places around the world, but I spent most of my high school years in Oslo, Norway, where my family is from. When I was in high school, I actually had a crush on this girl. Uh, she probably doesn't know this. Podcast. <laughs> I, I don't think she'll hear this. She probably won't hear this podcast. But, um, but I, had a, I had a crush on this girl who then um, basically said, hey, would you like to join the school play? The school play? And uh, <laughs> The school play. And so I joined, yep. I joined the play, primarily motivated by her. Correct. Uh, because, of course, when, when the girl who you've got a crush on asks you, would you like it, answer is almost, always yes. Always yes. Whatever always. the question. Would you like to yeah. clean the manure yes. in my backyard? Yes, I would. <laughs> that makes nothing better. I joined the play, and it was sort of an improv type of thing. So it was a lot of fun. And... Uh, on the back end of that, there were some talent scouts in the audience who contacted me and one thing led to the next and I, I was in a film and I ended up going to deciding I wanted to be an actor 
And so I went to a conservatory then at Boston University, sort of a full-time, you audition to get in and you, uh, you spend basically 12 to 15 hours a day just doing everything theater-related. You're, you're yeah. acting, but you're also working uh, the sets at night in actual theaters and you're, you're learning the whole trade and, and so forth. And during the course of the next uh, year and a half, I did another film in Norway and then that led to a sort of a TV show uh, that I w- did some episodes. And so I kind of really explored that fully and um, wow. came back. Yeah. I came back from that period and, and sort of thought, well, I'm not sure this is really what I want to do a hundred percent. And I began to get curious about other things. And over the course of six months, I ended up uh, double majoring and, and sort of it, it got got admitted into the political science program and and then dropped out ultimately from uh, from the theater program and uh, did a political science degree. The last six months of that degree, I was in London working in the House of Commons uh, for a member of parliament uh, who had ties to the London School of Economics. And I spent a lot of time at the LSE library ended up taking uh, a degree there and came out and had absolutely no idea what to do. And my girlfriend at the time was in LA. She was an actress. So I, I went out to LA. As all budding actors and actresses do. Yep. Went out yes. To- <laughs> yes. And, and as everyone in LA says, I really want to direct or <laughs> I really want to write. But, yeah. but for me, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and so I, I took various odd jobs Ended up working for um, the wife of, of the singer Roy Orbison. Roy uh, Orbison. I'm not sure how much. Well, actually, the um, the older part of the um, audience listening will absolutely know who Roy yes. Orbison. Yes, I'm the younger trying... ones have no clue. <laughs> Correct. My my daughters would just be exactly. Totally... I, I wonder whether I should overlay some Roy Orbison on the introduction to this episode. That would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I, I mean, it was a. It was it was good for what it was, but it yeah. was clearly not you know yeah. where I wanted to where I wanted to end up and and I you know one thing led to the next and I thought well you know what should I do next and I, I ended up stumbling onto the law as one option that that might you know give me at least buy some time and yeah. help me to figure out what what, you what comes next so I ended up uh, getting into a number of schools chose uh, the University of Chicago arrived there in 1992 and I got to say that was that was an absolute revelation for yeah. me. I mean, it was it was a moment where all these things that I'd been interested in kind of came together at once. So you had economics, you had philosophy, you had questions around justice, you had questions about what the law actually should be for, what its purpose is, yeah. economic incentives, uh, you know, and it all just, it was this heady brew. I was captivated and I absolutely loved uh, my first year of law school, which I think most of my friends at the time thought I was insane. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't tear away. And I can tell by the passion in your voice how it, how much of an impact that must have been for you. And I have to say, you know, it is a little bit unique because a lot of us find ourselves going straight from high school or college straight into law because we haven't worked out what else we want to do. It. Yes. And your journey before doing that and the self exploration, the experience that you've had, um, what. A, what a privilege, in a sense, to have that year where you where you really get that you know you're so passionate, but you really get that much out of it. Because I'm yeah. not sure many of us think about our first year law, uh, first year yeah at law in that way. I'm, I'm yeah. Well, it, you yeah. know, it 
I, I think with hindsight, definitely, I, yeah. I agree with that. At the time, as you're going through those, right. okay. those early 20s, when you have yeah. absolutely no idea what you want to do in your life. The uncertainty is still be, there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it can, yeah. Be, it can be a little bit, you yeah. know. Uh, yeah. but, but I think you're right. I think with hindsight, that, that journey is helpful. Before we get into your journey in law, starting at Widen Case, tell me some of the key takeaways from both the, the pre-law, so your, your theatre and, and finding your feet in LA, what kind of remains with you today as formerly from that part and then law school? The biggest takeaway from that time, I guess two things. Number one, communication and how to tell a story. Uh, and I, I think that has been one of the most important skills that I've ever learned uh, because really so much of law is about telling stories. So much about life is, is telling stories. And I think you... I learned very early that that our brains are wired for stories. They're not wired for facts and abstract information. They're wired for stories. Yeah. I, I can give you a, a list of things for you to contemplate, or I can tell you a story about those things. And if I tell you the story, you'll remember it forever. If I just give you the list, you'll forget it after 10 minutes. If you can develop the storytelling, because it's happened for thousands of years. Yes. For us. yes. It's, it's built into our DNA. That's how we pass down from generation to generation yes. the learning. It, it's, it's a survival. Yeah. It's a survival yep. instinct, right? In the, in the era before the written word, I think that was, yeah. you know, the sagas and everyone tells stories and that's how things, information gets passed down yeah. through stories. And the other, the other thing that I, I think I took away from that time was um, I've always been driven by an insatiable curiosity. And I, I think the arts is, is a wonderful, and any creative endeavor really is a wonderful place for curious people because you're always looking at things. You're always exploring moods and scenes and, and emotions. And you're thinking about how those can contribute to your, to your craft and contribute to, to, to creating something new. And I think that that passion for, um, for new ideas, for new influences, for being open and receptive to the world is, is very, very important, particularly in comedy and improv where, you know, you, you can't have a scene if you're not open to what your, your counterpart is doing. It, it, it doesn't work, right? If, if they say, well, I'm a bus driver and you say, no, um, you're a taxi driver. Like it just, that, that's not going to work, right? The scene won't work, so... Something I don't think I was so focused on a particular outcome. I think certainly for me personally, I, I kind of shut down certain yes. elements of curiosity because I thought it would deviate me from the path that I had chosen. S silly logic. No, no, but that's, that's not silly logic in the sense that I think our system is designed to stamp out curiosity. Everything is high stakes. And in a high stakes world, your brain shuts shuts down and narrows, and so it, it's a, it's a logical reaction. Let's move on to your journey in law. I think you started at White and Case. Um, yes. Talk to us about that. So this was 1995. Uh, so it was an era when globalization was really beginning to take hold in a in a meaningful way. And of all the different firms that I looked at, White & Case was the one that had the most globally expansive footprint staffed by New York lawyers, uh, New York qualified lawyers. So yeah. it, 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 it wasn't a franchise that had local firms under a banner. It really was an organic to do 
international work and I knew I wanted to do corporate work. I liked the win-win nature of corporate work, kind of didn't like the zero-sum nature of litigation. So yep. White and Case just felt like a, a very natural fit for me. Yep. So I went there, joined them in New York and spent about a year there doing sort of a wide range of corporate and commercial work and then was sent to Stockholm, to the Stockholm office uh, to work on a six-week transaction in which, uh, which involved the restructuring of the Coca-Cola companies, Nordic and Northern Eurasia bottling group. So I left all my stuff in New York. I packed six weeks worth of clothes and headed out uh, to Stockholm. And I came back to New York 20, 21 years later. Uh, tw- so, <laughs> so it just, I, I, I'll uh, tell you what, there would have been some moldy food in that refrigerator. Oh, wouldn't there? <laughs> yes, there, there were some moldy boxes after a few years when I finally uh, yeah. remembered that I had them. Yes, uh, that, that was for, for sure. I know we've spoken before about the opportunities you allowed yourself to be exposed to and how how important that was in your career. Talk to us a bit about that, because I think that's a, there's some really important learnings there. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, I, I think I, the, the, I, the great thing about that particular project was that it connected me with a bunch of interesting people and uh, and it allowed me to really it, it was a very independent um, sort of situation they they needed a New York qualified lawyer who spoke um, Swedish there weren't any others in the in the office and they kind of let me run with it so I really got to know the team there very well I had an opportunity to really uh, dive in and be part of that transaction in a very um, in a very unique way and there actually was one other New York qualified lawyer, but he wasn't based. I don't think he was based there. He had just left, but I, I did continue to work with him. Six weeks ended up turning into six months. I stayed in the Stockholm office. They asked me if I wanted to stay on when the deal ended and, and sort of become the inbound liaison for U.S. work that was coming into Sweden. Eventually moved to the Helsinki office, an opportunity arose to to stay in in the Nordics and and go to Helsinki uh, and work on capital markets work. It was a very small office, but the highest billing office in the entire White and Case global wow. system. So it was a and I got to Finland in you know February and it was just literally around the around the clock work in eternal darkness, but a fabulous experience nevertheless. It was a great learning opportunity and uh, and along the way I re met my wife. We got engaged and uh, I ended up deciding to stay in Europe and wanted to go to Germany where she was and uh, White and Case didn't have an office there, so I looked around and got a job with Sullivan and Cromwell uh, in Frankfurt, which was also very interesting. Uh, part of the journey. There doesn't seem to be any hesitation on your part Jan, to be trying different things, different countries, different experiences. And, and you certainly don't seem to be focused on, I need to, this is a particular path for, you know, partnership, for example, and I've got to get my roots down. You, you don't seem to be bothered by that at all in this part of your career. No. What do you put that down to? Is it just the kind of curiosity or is it, I didn't have an ambition to be a partner, so it didn't kind of matter what what, 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 what is that? At this stage, I think what, what really drove me in and maybe what still drives me at some level is I had this fundamental belief that life was an adventure, that, um, right. you know, a yep. little bit of the, maybe it's a little bit of the Viking uh, notion of a saga, you know, 
I'm glad we brought that in. There's no way I'm going to let this podcast finish without a reference <laughs> to Vikings. Yeah. So thank well, you. Well, you know, the, the great thing about the Vikings was they, they you know, they, they went everywhere, right? And I think the ones who were very successful had uh, sagas that were written or sung by others yeah. around them. The saga of Lifewood Eidickson, for example, who went uh, to North America. And so I kind of always envisage my life like I would love my life to be a saga. I would love my life to be an adventure, to be something that is not boring. And, you know, sagas don't get yeah. written about somebody yeah. who went from A to B and from B to A every day for 40 years and got a gold watch and retired. That's a boring story. So I, I, was, kind of, I was kind of interested in adventure and, uh, and I didn't really have any ties. I wasn't, you know, you're young and there's, it's low stakes in some ways. But I think it's yep. just not overthinking yep. things, you know, it, taking an yeah. opportunity. And I think many people look at an opportunity and think it's forever. I looked at it and thought, well, you know, it's for a couple of years. Let's see what happens. Yes, and let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. There are not too many songs out there that are sung about someone who did the same thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think you're probably right. <laughs> well, all right. Let, let's transition to your career in-house. Um, uh, take us through that career arc and some of the maybe some of the key takeaways. Yeah. And of course, you're currently in house as the general counsel. Um, yeah. Out, but take us um, through the journey before you get. So, to so I so I was at Sullivan for about three years in in Frankfurt, um, doing a lot of capital yeah. markets work. And again, they kept sort of trying to bring me back to New York. And you know, it's time to go to New York. It's time to kind of you know really specialize. Yeah. And, and and I. Didn't want yep. to do that. And I was increasingly more interested in the business side of it and in the breadth of work that, that an in-house environment would offer. So I decided I wanted to go in-house and ended up initially getting a, a position at uh, Kimberly Clark in London. So we packed up our bags and we moved to, to London. My wife got a job there and I spent about a year in that role. And then this remarkable thing happened after the first uh, year kind of clocked around the people that I had started working with at Coca-Cola on that six-week deal in Stockholm suddenly came back um, and said, would you like to have dinner? And um, I joined them for dinner and they said, listen, we're putting together this, uh, this, uh, this new bottling business called Coca-Cola HBC or Hellenic Bottling Company, which will be uh, a large um, publicly traded company, about 5 billion euros in revenue. And we need a deputy general counsel the person that I had worked mostly with on that deal had been appointed general counsel. And uh, he said, you know, love for you to join. The The only caveat is you've got to move to Athens, Greece, and it's a permanent move. You know, we gave that some thought and kind of the same thing. We just said, you know what, let's just give it a shot yeah. for three years. Let's see what happens. Uh, so so, so happens. we took that. Yeah, I love we that. We took that and yep. um, and actually they didn't move us to Athens right away. So I stayed in London for a year with that role. Then they moved us to Vienna because that was the kind of commercial heart of the business. Um, it, was, it, it was a business that combined Russia and CIS and the new EU member states with uh, parts of Western and, and Northern Europe, as well as bits of Africa. And uh, Vienna was sort of the gateway in those days to those new EU member states. So we spent three years in, in, in Vienna and absolutely loved it. And, and during the course of that time, I got to know a gentleman who worked in the office above me, in the Coca-Cola office there, who 
later went on to become the general counsel of the Coca-Cola company. Uh, and so we, we kind of became friends and we connected. And then I was subsequently moved to Athens and he was moved to Japan. And I spent three years in Athens, was sort of beginning to feel like I could get ready for some new adventure if it came along. Uh, and he happened, and then the, 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 the guy in Japan called me and said, Hey, you know, I'm leaving the Japan office and, and I wondered if you'd like to join the Coca-Cola company as the general counsel for Japan. At this point, we had two kids. and Let me guess. Let's give it a shot and see exactly, what happens. Exactly. <laughs> and and by, by this time, we had worked out, a, I think, a, a deal structure, my wife and I, which, which was, you know, right. um, when we have these sorts of opportunities, we'll commit for three years. So once we make a joint decision to go in, we're all in for three years. No one veto, no yep. one has a veto right um, because it takes three years to figure out whether this is good or bad. After yep. three years, on yep. the third anniversary, both of us have a veto right, and indeed the kids have a veto right. So if anyone raises their hand wow. and says, I want out, my commitment then was, we're out. I'll quit. We'll go somewhere else. We'll do what it takes. And I think it's that. That's a courageous call to make at the beginning of those three years. Well, I think it's the key to the whole thing because knowing that everyone has an exit card is what gives everyone the opportunity to just dive in and say, all right, well, the worst thing that can happen is I'm here for a few years, right? Then we went to Japan and it was, yeah, I mean, it was it was an amazing experience. I, I think in many directions, I think professionally, Japan, the, the, the Coca-Cola Japan office is um, one of the most innovative uh, places on earth. It, it um, has a reputation for oh. developing a new product. I mean, their product development cycle from inception, you know, where people are sitting around a, a, a table conceiving of the product to it being on the shelf in 7-Eleven is six weeks. So it, so it's just explosive, wow. um, hyper, hyper innovation. Yeah. And that was just a fascinating, you know, fascinating experience to see that in action, to experience that, that, that level of collaboration was, uh, was really, really quite something. I tell you, Bianca, I'm thinking about my product and engineering team and I'm six weeks. Are you kidding me? I'll tell you what, I'm giving them a hard I've time. Never, I've never seen anything <laughs> like it. I've never seen anything like it. So don't, don't give them too hard a time. It, there's very, there are very few other businesses I've ever seen that, that can run that. Wow. So after three years, the same, same guy uh, at this point had been promoted to the general counsel of the company and was, was, was in Atlanta. And I was supposed to go to Hong Kong to become the general counsel of Asia Pacific. So I was appointed GC of Asia Pacific uh, for a very short period of time. Uh, and about 10 days before we were set to move to Hong Kong and my wife had a job, the kids had school, school spots. He called me again and said, are you sitting down? You, the world has changed. Uh, and th there's this new role that has opened up in Atlanta which is associate general counsel of, of the company and one of the three global business units. Um, and we'd like you to take that role. And so I had to call my wife and make that difficult call that, uh, you know, Mount Fuji, uh, there's this yeah. other mountain called Stone Ooh, Mountain. Kidding, just kidding. <laughs> yes. Just kidding. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's just as cultural and interesting. So, yeah, no. So it was a, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a change in plans but uh, yep. proved to be a great move and a, a fabulous job. It was 
was called the Bottling Investment Group. So it was all of the bottling assets that the Coca-Cola company owned around the world. It's about 82,000 employees at that time, $13 billion in revenue, uh, a very diverse group of countries that sort of came in and out of the portfolio. And it was really a, a hospital ship in some ways. It was a, a place where you took bottling businesses that either needed repair in some fashion or were in strategic locations where uh, you needed more direct uh, control and turned them into true sort of excellent operations and then spun them back out uh, because Coke doesn't really want to own bottling businesses. It just wants yeah. to be a branding and marketing yeah. business. Um, so that was a yeah. fabulous place to learn. Um, and, uh, and Atlanta proved to be a really great place to live. So we were there for about five years. And that kind of take, takes me to the GC route. I, I right. kind of felt like I was yeah. ready for something else. And, and my friend was still the general counsel there and he wasn't going anywhere. So I remember one of my early discussions with Thomas Barothi, who's the former COO of Legal at UBS. And Thomas telling me about how he brought him up himself up to speed with running a legal team and taking an operational role. And I just remember vividly because we had a Zoom call and I remember him reaching back behind him to his shelf and pulling out a book and it was called Building an Outstanding Legal Team. And, of course, it was your <laughs> book. Yeah? And Thomas saying to me, this is the best book I've ever read about building essentially a legal function, a legal team. Wow. So tell me about that. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, I should I should pay him a... I should pay him a royalty. Um, That's a great endorsement. No, so that book came out of my first uh, GC gig because I I got an offer to join uh, a company called Pearson, which is a FTSE 100 uh, company. So the first, you know, role as general counsel of a publicly traded uh, company. And I started Googling and looking around for, you know, how to do this job, (laughs) thinking naively that there might be some you know, some framework out there, right? Absolutely. And, and turned out yes. there was nothing. And um, and as I got into the role, I was I spent seven years in that in that job. And about halfway through, I realized, you know, this is this, this could be the book that I wished I had had because I had learned so yeah. much in those three years about that journey. And I thought I I really should. Um, I really should kind of lean forward and pay it back or, or whatever the expression is and, and yeah. write yeah. something that would be ho- hopefully useful to some people if they were stepping into that job. And then I guess the other part of it is that it's, it's a way to consolidate your own thoughts. If you put something to paper, yeah. you really have to organize your own methodology around that. And, and I, it was hitting, hitting, sort of like hitting back and forth in my head whether I should do this, whether I had time to do it. And I spent a week at Harvard Law School doing a course that David Wilkins and Scott Westfall uh, teach called Leadership and Corporate Counsel, which is sort of an in-house GC, uh, almost like, you know, you, you go through case studies of what GCs did well yeah. and what they didn't. And, and I spoke with them about it over dinner and they, they said, you really, you really need to write this book. You really should write it. And so at that point, I just decided what the heck I'll, I'll do it. And, um, and the book itself is an interesting confluence of random networking because as i thought about writing this book i did a speaking gig where someone came up to me afterwards and asked if we could have a cup of coffee and i said sure and it turned out that she was a publisher for globe law and business which is the the publishing company that published my book 
and that so that relationship came out of networking and then subsequently yeah. as i started writing the manuscript i went to university of chicago uh alumni thing and met someone who loved the idea who had been a gc and who really found her passion in editing and she said i'd be willing to edit your book for free so so i took wow. that one and that that yep. sort of team just came together out of um, out of the, the, you know, the, I guess the randomness of opportunities that one, one meets. And, and I thought later about that, that you could very easily overlook those things. Oh, absolutely. How much does luck and randomness play in your life and your, and your success? I don't think anyone should underestimate that. Uh, I, you know, I think about being grateful every day. It's not, you know, sure there's hard work and so forth, but I, I think of, Person's success, there's a huge factor yes. of luck. Whether it's where you're born, how you're raised, the, your color, opportunity, everything. So much of it. So much of it comes in. So much of it comes down to luck. But you know what? I do think that there, there's a part of it that comes down to luck, unquestionably. And then there's a part that comes down to serendipity, which, which is slightly yes. different and which is really about you know, making your luck or, or you know, uh, just agree. finding ways to connect and build and explore and then things come out of that. So, co Correct. So in other words, creating more and more opportunities and connections, saying yes more than saying no <laughs> is, is really important. And because as you get older, you work at the the world is smaller than you thought, and those connections appear, connections that you never thought existed. So absolutely right, luck is important, but the more time you spend creating endpoints or opportunities where things can connect, where that serendipity and randomness can happen, saying yes more than saying no to opportunities. And the outlook you have. I mean, there's a, there's a great... There's a great book out there called Serendipity, which is written by someone by the name of Christian Bush, and he studies serendipity at NYU, and it's 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 fascinating right. because one of the one of the research um, experiments that they ran was uh, they had um, some people who considered themselves lucky in life, and some people who said they considered themselves unlucky in life, and they had them run the same. Uh, the same test, which was go to this cafe, sit down, wait for 30 minutes uh, for someone, and if they don't show up, leave. Um, and what they did was they, they planted a five-pound note at the door. They made sure all the tables were filled except one next to someone who was typing away on their computer and so forth. And the people who were unlucky, they overlooked the five-pound note. They got their coffee. They sat down next to this gentleman said nothing, and after 30 minutes, they left. The ones who considered themselves lucky, they came in, they saw the five-pound note, they went in, yeah. um, they sat next to the person, struck up a conversation, closed a yeah. business opportunity, and left. And then, you know, each oh, one well, said, that. well, the <laughs> unlucky ones had a terrible day, it was nothing that happened, and the lucky ones said they had an amazing day, and all these things. So, look how lucky you are. That is a fantastic story. T tell me, Bun, have what what has changed between the time that you've written that book and now? What are the themes that you haven't captured there that, if you were to write 
I'm not sure if you have written, I don't think you have, the second edition that you would be putting into that book now. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the, in terms, the book itself has sort of, you know, a number of principles for how you organize yourself for building a great yep. team. Uh, and, yep. and it breaks into three groups of the hardware, which are really kind of these measurable uh, elements like um, reporting lines, budget, um, you know, technology, providers, how you think, think and organize yourself around those, those hardware elements. Then the second is software, which is culture and people. Uh, and um, in the book, I say generational change. And then you have constants being the third bucket, which are strategy and, and change itself. So how you manage through change. Yeah. The thing that I, a couple of things that I think have uh, probably two areas where I think generally that structure, by the way, still stands the test of time. And I, still, I think it, yep. uh, it, it endures. There are two things I would change if I do a, and I, I've been asked to do a second edition of this book. I don't have time and, but I will eventually do it. <laughs> but two things that I'm thinking in particular of one is, you know, around technology and the role that technology plays uh, and, and it plays in the legal profession and how you think about approaching technology. Uh, I've had a lot more thinking and a lot more experience in the years since the book came out uh, on how to implement that effectively, how to think about digital transformation in a structured way. So I think I'd put something in there around that. And then the second would be I would replace generational change in the in the software piece with diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I think really has right. moved up the up up the ladder. And it was something that you know if I if I look back on it now, that's what I was groping for in 2016. Uh, right. But but I think now that is clearly the, the the piece of that chapter that needs to be written. And what is it about the technology piece too? that you you see because I, I want to kind of dovetail this and i'm not sure if they do dovetail but i i was going to ask you about what you think the future looks like yeah. in legal the risks and opportunities uh and i'm not sure if the technology bit kind of dovetails into that but t t tell me your thoughts yeah, about look, that. so i mean i think if you to answer that i think what you need to do is just step back and sort of say what has the journey been for the in-house uh team and for the general counsel over the last mm -hmm. say 30 or 40 years and you can really break it into kind of three, three segments. GC 1.0, uh, which which you, you may have a paleo GC that happened, you know, back in the in the in the early parts of the of the twentieth century, where the GC role was really more about air traffic controlling work back to a law firm. Uh, but if you take the post World War II GC 1.0, the world is beginning to globalize for the first time. GCs, it's it's still a doable thing to have a relatively small team of in-house counsel that work closely with one big law firm and um, and have a few offices around the world. Then you have sort of 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, the advent of the World Trade Organization, the rise of China, the emergence of computers. The world just gets way more complicated and global... Yeah commerce gets more complicated that world requires a much more complex organization and so the in-house department grows in complexity the, the nature of the work grows in complexity fast forward to 2007 and you have the emergence of the digital revolution the iphone big data social media and digital business models that create much, much lower entry barriers uh, and flywheel effects and all the other things we know about that in turn result in 
incredible pressure on business profits. And in that world, the GC and the legal department have to run operations in a, in a much more complex environment than ever before. But now with this cost pressure baked in, meaning you've got to do more with less. And that more with less challenge can really only be met by leveraging the same technology that exists for the business yeah. world. And, and that, that, that's where tech comes into it. And I think how you think about breaking down the value chain, breaking down your service model, farming out the bits and pieces of that model to the most efficient provider, to the most efficient technology tool, to the best process, that is the story of the era that we're living in right now. And, and, yeah. and I think that's only going to accelerate uh, and, it's, and we're going to see increased pressure to innovate, to optimize, uh, to break up that value chain ever more. And its importance in the, the, the importance of technology in that regard is uh, to continue to grow because change is exponential. And we're just seeing that, you know, I, 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 was, I was thinking about this the other day, the best way to illustrate this, that, you know, 30 linear steps is about 25 yards, but 30 exponential steps is something like 25 times around the earth. So it's, you know, it, and that's hard to wow. get your mind around, but as technology yep. doubles in computing capacity with Moore's law, you know, every couple of years, and it has been for the last 30 years, you know, what happens, what happens over the next 30 years? And what does that mean? Yeah. Um, it's pretty crazy. Is the legal industry ready? What, what, what is your call on that? Dan? Are we ready or uh, is there going to be a lot of pain? Pain and learning before we get there. I think we're sort of in the advent of of, of readiness for this. Yeah. Um, so two things that I would that I would observe there. I think one is clearly there is a need for legal operations and legal technology to play a big role in uh, the evolution of legal departments. We've got to have that. And yeah. right now yeah. it feels like pioneer yeah. status, where super hard to find the right talent super hard to figure out whether yeah. they have the experience needed. It's all word of mouth and it's all kind of, so that, yeah. so that needs to, that needs to professionalize that, that whole profession yeah. needs more structure. It needs a professional um, qualification, you know, and, and so forth. That yeah. will happen. I'm pretty convinced yeah. about that. The, the second thing is, ironically, I think as the world gets hyper exponential and, and changes in crazy ways, the rise of the generalist, is with more strategic uh, output, with a sense of curiosity, uh, with a focus on human skills, uh, is actually, I think, the key to success. There was a study done when I was at Pearson called Jobs of the Future that was with Oxford Martin, and they were kind of looking at what skills would be needed in 2030. And the interesting thing was that it was really, it really all centered around human skills learning strategies, psychology, emotional mm -hmm. intelligence, curiosity and originality, the ability to coordinate, the fluency of ideas, uh, judgment and decision-making. You know, these were all, uh, and then complex problem solving, how you tackle a problem. These are all uniquely generalist skills. In some ways they're not, you know, these are not things that you, uh, that you specialize in. And, and uniquely human. Uniquely human. That's really important, uniquely human. Um, the nature of technology is we are not all going to be experts in all technology. Yes. In fact, 
And, and we don't need to be. And, and it's not only when I, it's impossible to be. So those that can manage, I think you're absolutely right, those who are actually doubling down on human, on the emotional intelligence, on understanding how to motivate, drive, influence, all of that, and coordinate and be strategic, of course. I think also applying those human skills to the real conundrum of how technology should most effectively be deployed to enable legal services to be uh, more customer friendly, lower cost, more accessible, and so forth. That's really that's really the challenge. That's a human challenge. That's not a you. You still need the specialists. You need people who understand that technology, and but you also need people who are thinking about the broader question of what should we do with that technology? Where do, where do we need to deploy it, uh, and what can we hope to achieve? So those are those are big questions that. Uh, so I, I'm I'm a big I'm I'm very bullish on uh, actually legal education being a very good I think a continued good basis for some of these questions if lawyers choose to go back to their roots and ask good questions and you know yeah. Jim Collins who wrote Good to Great and a number of other books uh, had the chance to meet him once and he was saying that. Some lawyers make excellent CEOs, and he named several that were sort of on his top 10 list. And he said, um, the reason those people made good CEOs is because lawyers are trained to ask the right questions, while MBAs are trained to give the right answers. And and, <laughs> and I think there's some real truth to that, that it, it, if you think yeah. strategically and ask the right questions and you remain open and curious, your legal training will actually guide you in the in the direction. Simultaneously, he said... Lawyers can sometimes make terrible CEOs um, because they're risk averse, because they yeah. they they're very channel focused. They they can't think out of their lane, you know, etc. So I think it's it's up to us as lawyers and as legal leaders to really take the best of our of our education and leverage that rather than kind of fall prey to the sort of uh, risk averse, terrified uh, you know yeah. uh, mindset that that often um, I think uh, pervades. What's become more important to you as you get older? As you get older, you know, your time becomes more precious, right? And when you're young, you have plenty of time. You just you don't have a lot of other things, you know? uh, but you've got tons of time. And I think, you know, recognizing that how you spend your time, how you spend your days under the sun, as it were, uh, really, really important. Yeah appreciating that you should think as carefully about how you spend time as you do how you spend money because it is a finite resource like money resource except that you have to spend it every day you can't save it so that that i think is something that has become uh, a very very important to me and then the other is you know and i know jim you share this it's just a sense of gratitude and i i think when you're younger, it's easy to kind of race ahead and you're, you're just kind of in the moment. I think as you get older, taking time to step out every day and just be yeah. deeply, deeply grateful for something. And it may not be that you feel particularly grateful uh, every day of your life. But I think if you just spend 10 minutes thinking it through and understanding that no matter how bad your life is, there are things to be deeply grateful yeah. for is really important. Uh, I, I think it's one of the most important practices for each of us to get into it centers certainly centers me every single day 
as you get a little bit older and you recognise time is the most precious resource you have. Um, and if you work back and say, let's assume I have this much time left, then really, really thinking about how you're spending yeah. it. Um, those two things, the gratitude and recognising that time is the most precious. There may be a third one that's just worth mentioning at the very end, which I become more and more enamoured with the Stoics the older I get. And I, I used to think the Stoics were these people who just you know, sat there and suffered in silence. But but you begin to realise actually it's much deeper than that. And one of the things yeah. that, that I think is such an enduring principle that they lived by was this notion that you shouldn't spend a lot of time worrying about what you can't control. And we yep. actually do spend enormous amounts of time worrying about what's going to happen in the Russian invasion in Ukraine or, uh, you know, the next uh, crisis that, that you read about in the paper and, and, you know, and inflation. You can't control any of those things. And so to spend enormous amounts of time worrying about that actively is a waste of your time. And instead, yep. focus on the things you can control, which are right in front can't of you. Control. And that, I think, so in some ways, I think just narrowing down your world a little bit and saying, grateful yep. for this, focus on what you can control and, you know, just kind of go along with the journey. Don't, don't get so hung up on all the fears that, you know, things could go wrong and yeah. so forth. I think those are important lessons. Two final questions, marriage advice. What's your <laughs> advice on a strong, long-lasting, happy marriage? Oh, wow. Um, my wife will mock me if she listens to this. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I have great marriage advice for anyone. I, I think maybe certainly what's, I think what's worked for, for me perhaps is, um, you know, number one, letting, letting there be distance between what you do and what your spouse or partner does and, and not obsessively trying to do everything together, really giving yourself that. I think, I think there was a poet who said, you know, let there be an ocean between you uh, that, that ties you, but there's still space there. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that, that notion. And then I think just remembering that your partner is always right. I think that's a, that's a, that is, that is very good advice. Uh, but, but seriously, taking a breath, not getting so impatient mm -hmm. um, and trying to remind yourself why you're with this person and that, they don't deserve a, an impatient, intemperate answer, even though you're very familiar with each other. I think because those things are what wear a relationship down over time and, and you know, just I think tending it always as a, like a garden. Um, it's organic, but you need to also tend it and make sure it's it take out the weeds from time to time and plant a few roses. Uh, I, I love that description. I mean, I, I'm incredibly fortunate myself. I think we're going to be coming up to 30 years in the next wow, year or congrats. two. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, there's, I could talk about this topic for ages, and I'm not saying I've got, um, uh, certainly don't have the answers, but some of the things you've talked about, re respect, really yes. right from the beginning, making sure that you provide, that you mutually respect each other, and it's genuine, and it's not only private, and it's public. Yes. That that's key. The distance that you talked about, I, I think it's right. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's doing um, your own thing and recognizing you are two separate yes. human beings who are though have a have that mutual respect and are bonded, you know, hopefully for life. One I love, Bjorn, is um, we often in relationships keep scorecards. Yes. Um, whether it's sibling relationships, whether it's parental, whether uh, you know friends. 
and our spouses or partners. And one thing I say is never keep the scorecard. Or if you are, make sure you your part of the score is over-indexing and you're yes, way ahead. Yes, I, I think that's great. That that's great involved. advice. And you know, maybe maybe it's a maybe it's a tributary to that never keeping a scorecard. But I think I think not not staying angry, not not harboring that anger, just kind of letting it go at some point, and being humble enough to recognize that you're a flawed person just like everyone else. And you know, there is some some truth to that. Like life, it's a journey, and it's a journey that if those those of us who are lucky enough can have a partner to have. Um, to yeah. our final days. That's yeah. an absolute... You know, um, Clayton Christensen, who was a really great yep. professor at Harvard Business School, um, he likened relationships to investments. And he said, you know, your job is a short-term investment. You, If you invest time in it, it will yield a return very quickly. But that means you have less time to invest in your, in your family and your relationships. And they are long-term investments. If you don't invest yep. early and often, then over time that investment will generate a loss and by then it's too late. Uh, late. I thought that was just a great yeah. analogy. Fantastic. Fantastic. Brian, you and I could talk for <laughs> hours, but I'm not sure the audience is going to listen for hours. So look, thank you so much for joining me. I've had an absolute blast on this discussion and I know the audience is... Hey, well. thanks a lot. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you listeners for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.